The truth is right and lies are wrong, right? Could it be that these very simple nursery school concepts are far more complex than we think? Of course they are. Otherwise, we wouldn't struggle throughout our entire lives with the gray area between them. Truth and lies are in our headlines so much that they themselves seem to be losing their meaning, turning into malleable things awaiting our interpretation in a given moment. So obscured and subjective has our language become that when we catch glimpses of straightforwardness or radical truth-telling, it can open the speaker to accusations of being too brusque at worst and can be radical and deliciously shocking at best. Take the social media reaction to recent events with Sally Yates and James Comey. Truth and the prospect of it revealing itself is positively irresistible. Yet, lies have their place if you believe that the occasional white lie to spare feelings about, say, a terrible outfit or something, is not just acceptable, but that it's the high road. But there reaches a place in which white lies become sinister, and we develop an almost expectation of them. Take, for example, the ubiquitous, yeah, no, yeah, let's totally hang out sometime, where neither party has any intention of doing so, ever, ever. So pervasive is the practice of casual lying that in some instances, telling the complete truth doesn't even occur to us as the first option. Think about it. How many times have we all struggled with how to navigate a very tricky and stressful conversation on the horizon and tried on different scenarios in our heads only to later realize that the full truth is the best course of action? So then, Do others and their reactions we anticipate them having push and pull us into this very gray area between the truth and a lie? Maybe. Maybe so. Clearly, we have a lot to discuss tonight, but that is our aim, to talk about truth, lies, and why we might find ourselves in those in-between areas from outright untruths to white lies to keep the peace or to spare feelings. I'm Amy Guth, and that's all coming up tonight on the Saturday Night Special on 720 WGN. Live from the biggest small town in America. This is WGN Chicago, radio home of millions throughout mid-America. Radio? Well, radio became the Pied Piper to a strange new world. Time to climb up on our big shoulders and get inside our massive heart. This is the Saturday Night Special with Amy Guth. Seven twenty WGN. You heard the woman. This is the Saturday Night Special, and I'm Amy Guth. And tonight we are talking about truth and lies. But more specifically, we are going to spend a lot of time talking about that gray area because that is a big, wide swath of land right there between the white lie to maybe spare someone's feelings, like, oh no, those shoes are really cute on you. Mm, not really at all, right? Maybe there's that white lie all the way down the line to why would we possibly lie about something major, major. Maybe we broke the law and are lying to save our butts and keep ourselves out of jail, whatever that is. That gray area is a big, big swath of land, and it is very fertile ground because there's a lot of things that might compel us to tell a lie or to tell the truth, and there's a lot of motivations, and there's a lot to it. So we are going to be talking about that tonight, and of course, we have some experts coming in to talk with us about that. Our good friend, Dr. John Duffy, is here in studio with us to talk about this because Anytime, you know my rule, anytime I say, what makes us act that way, we call Dr. Duffy because he helps us figure out why we act that way. We're also going to be hearing from Dr. Brad Blanton, who is the author 
of Radical Honesty, which is a really fascinating book that really is just saying we're screwing it up. We're not telling the truth enough. We need to get into telling radical truths to one another. We're going to be talking with him by phone a little bit later. And then we're going to hear from John Rental, who is the author of The Band List. And he's also a political commentator at The Independent in London. So we're going to be talking with him because he has written about how our language totally messes things up and really obscures the truths that we are trying to tell. So all that and more when we come back and get this conversation underway on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. We had to rock out to that one for a minute. That's a good jam right there. A little Fleetwood Mac action for you. We're playing that song here tonight on the Saturday Night Special because we're talking about truth and lies, which seems like a pretty straightforward thing that we all got straight in our heads around nursery school, right? Tell the truth. Don't tell stories. Don't fib. But nonetheless, we struggle with that the rest of our lives in that big gray area between the truth and lies. And if you do not believe me, I suggest you look at any news outlet right now, turn to the political section and look and just see how much um, that topic seems to be coming up lately. So we are talking about that tonight because it is a lot more complicated than we might think. And you know my rule, anytime we find ourselves saying, and the hell makes people act that way. We go get our good friend, Dr. John Duffy, who joins us in studio tonight. Welcome. Thank you for having me here. So, Happy to be here. So glad to have you back. It's always a pleasure to hang out with you and and wrestle with the big topics and think about all the big things. Well, so let's start with with a, a question that perhaps is, is simple yet unbelievably complex, and that is, what makes us lie? Yeah, it, it's, um, it's the biggest question of the night, I would imagine, and yet... There's no one nice, clean, simple answer for it, right? The, the lies I work with probably most often are kids lying to their parents, right? And so oftentimes that is to gain some freedom, avoid an argument, postpone some reality. Oh, math is fine right now, Mom. I think I can go out this weekend, you know, <laughs> like that kind of thing. Um, and, and there is this, uh, this gradation of lying between the little white lie of, you know, no, honey, you look beautiful in that dress. And, you know, mm-hmm. this this kind of like, you know, I I did not have sex with that woman. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. And so, and so, you know, um, the question is, the answer is often like, well, to save face mm-hmm. in some way, right? Um, to postpone something. Um, we talked about aggrandizement of just, just about like kind of like what I bring to the table, I don't think it's sufficient. So I'm yeah. going to create some reality that feels better, that looks better. It's almost like the Match.com effect where it's like, I don't know if I, what I'm putting out there is really good enough, so I'm going to create something. Right, yeah. right. I'm going to make myself sound really, really marketable and dateable and yeah. wonderful and brilliant here. Right, right. Um, well, I think there's another category of that, too, that I think we should not overlook tonight, and that is the lies we tell ourselves. There is, um, that's probably the biggest problem that we all face when it comes to lying is we are not always available to be truthful to ourselves. And so we lie to ourselves over and over and over again, and it becomes habitual. Yeah. And, um, and we tend to maybe not believe our own lies, but get in the habit of ignoring Mm. the fact that we're lying to ourselves um, about a number of things. And I think most of us do it at least some of the time. Sure. Yeah. And is it to avoid discomfort? 
I mean, I think we probably are protecting ourselves on some level. Like, no, I have it totally together. My life isn't falling apart or I'm not addicted to something or whatever. It, it typically is adaptive. Mm-hmm. It's usually like, you know, I really don't have it in me right now. The ego strength, the, you know, the lack of depression or anxiety to look at my reality, to really have a look at it and and look at the truth of it. So I'm going to park some of it in the back of my mind and I'll, I'll deal with that when when it makes sense to deal with that, which often is never, never. Comes. <laughs> right. right? Or because you got an intervention or something yes, and yes. you're forced to, or you land in jail or yeah. sometimes you're forced to confront things that you don't want to confront about yourself. When it comes from the outside, you know, yeah. the, the impressive thing is when it comes from the inside. And, um, and oftentimes I find like it's therapy that draws out that lie. Um, and, and it's difficult. I, it's incredible. I don't want to minimize the idea that it is brutal for people to realize the deep lies that they've been telling themselves for years about themselves, you know, that mm, I'm not really who I, that image I put out to the world. I'm not, that that's not really who I fundamentally am. So on some level, I feel like this fraud. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think it was very powerful to me when, um, there was a New York Times story in which Oprah Winfrey was talking about walking onto the set, filming the new Henrietta Lacks project, right? Uh-huh. And she was talking about how intimidating it is for her. And she feels, she, she did not use the word fraud, but she said, oh my gosh, I was hoping Reese Witherspoon would not ask me anything about the number of films I've done because I've probably done four. She's done like 20. Right. But I was like, if Oprah Winfrey has imposter syndrome, we should be talking about this. Absolutely. Because right. we all have it about something. Of course. Of course. Everybody's insecure about something. And, you know, people, somebody was asking me about narcissism for a reason that we may or may not want to get into at some point tonight. May but. or may not have anything to do with the <laughs> right. White House, whatever. Right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> um, and really, that's the um, ultimate in lying to mm. ourselves, right? It's kind of... Um, creating this fictional character that that we name ourselves because we really in the end there's this deep sense of self-loathing we really don't like ourselves much at all and so what we put out there is almost entirely fiction and it's it's a brutal state of mind to be in yeah yeah I think that can go two ways though because sometimes we think we're small and we tell ourselves this I'm not good enough I'm not smart or I'm not capable of this thing when everyone else thinks you're a badass right right oh, there's yeah. that one too oh absolutely I think it's probably it, I don't know I wouldn't say I was gonna say it's maybe more kind but that, that may not be true there because it's from the it seems like it's from the same thing at the end of the day there's like a scared human being on the inside but it might manifest like a power hungry tyrant narcissist or it might manifest like you're you're doing such a good job but you are the last one to know you're you're right on it um you know the the word we use the phrase we use is inner child so all of us have this inner child and i really do believe this you know when you sit down with somebody for a couple hours and you really get down to their essence usually we're very childlike and we're kind of um, we carry certain scripts from way, way back. The old when. tapes. The old tapes <laughs> that we are playing, you know, decades and decades later, and they amplify over time. They don't just, they don't diminish, they tend to amplify. And even if we um, achieve great things and, and get all this um, kudos in the meantime, uh, it is really, really hard to overcome the negative things that we can hear from parents or from caregivers from decades ago. It's mm-hmm. really, really tough to get past that. Yeah. yeah. And then we move into the realm of truth. Mm-hmm. And that seems so straightforward. But if you actually start thinking about the lies you tell yourself and others in a given day, it's kind of mind-boggling. When I first started thinking about the idea for this show – 
I started listening for them from myself and others. And I think some of them are so commonplace, we don't even realize we're lying. Yeah. Of, and sometimes we, with very good intentions, say, yes, I will totally call you tomorrow. And then, you know, the world falls apart and you don't do it. Right. But, but then there's, there's, it's almost expected that if you cross paths with somebody, even if you don't like each other at all, you're going to part ways by saying, I will totally come to your barbecue next weekend <laughs> or whatever that thing is. We, we, and, and to me, that's an interesting fine line between you want to be, in, we, we all want to be honest people, I think. Right. And we want to tell the truth. But if, but imagine the scene, if you just said, actually, you're my worst neighbor and I don't like you at all. And your yard is messy and I just avoid your entire block because of you. Right. It would be a scene. It, it violates every social norm <laughs> we are told to believe. And yet, oddly, I, I was thinking the same thing earlier today. The social norm is the lie, right? Yeah. You know, like it, you brought up truth. And, and, you know, when you first proposed, like, oh, let's talk about lying and truth, lying's easier to talk about. It's, there's, there's more of it going on. And truth feels a little more slippery to me. You know, we can talk about all these gradations of, of, of lies. But when you... This, you talked about Sally Yates, and you know, mm-hmm. and I think about. Well, um, I happen to think, boy, she just sat there and she told the truth, and right. and what was what threw me about that is how rarely we do right. that, right? I mean, and and how disarming it is, you it's know, true. to know, like, to really think, like, wow, the whole time, I think this person's <laughs> like being completely honest, right? And she's not going to walk away saying, hey, this was really fun. I hope we do it again sometime. Sally Sally Yates has no time for any of our nonsense. <laughs> no. She's not going to do that. And, and, and yet it was so, sh- her truth telling was so shocking. It rippled across social media. Yeah. People were like, she just threw it down. She lifted the bus to throw them under it, but it didn't play like a throwing someone under the bus. It, it played very, very straightforwardly, very confidently. Like, look, I agreed to, to uphold the law and I did so. Thanks. Bye. Yeah. And, and it didn't seem like she was trying to take anybody down. It no. just seemed like you asked me a question. I will answer the will question. Answer. You asked me another question. I don't, maybe I wasn't precise enough the first time. I'll answer it again. And it it became irresistible. Yeah. And the idea that, that now Comey is saying, I will talk, but only in public so everyone can hear it. That's irresistible. It is. The idea, it's like, it's, it's gossip times 10. It's huge. It's big. No matter what he says, everyone's going to be hanging on his every word with the prospect of him revealing some truth to us. Right. Which is so interesting that we don't. We don't assume truth is 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 the default. Yeah, I, 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 it makes me wonder whether there was a time when we were mining for the lies, because now I think we're mining, mining for, for truth. the truth. Yeah, right? yeah, it's true. Yeah, and if you think about, I'm sure you have seen so much of this. The times when the truth is very tough or scary, mm-hmm. you the things we have to do to ourselves and for ourselves to make it okay. I'm I'm thinking in particular of like someone. Um, if you give someone an intervention, you have, you probably have like a counselor there. You have your whole family there. They've written their statements to right. say, and sometimes they're as simple as I'm sorry, I wasn't there for you. And I see the path it's put you on, you know, right. like sometimes it's something really simple and straightforward, but yet we have to bring in a professional for that or think of maybe someone coming out of the closet and how, how, I mean, I know several people who have that have really, really stressed and planned about how, what am I going to say to my parents and and one person I know who came out she said she was rambling on so long because she just couldn't come out and say dad I'm gay and finally he said it 
He was like, I know, I know where you're going with this, <laughs> and I've known for a long time it's okay. Let her off that hook and <laughs> right. did it for her. Yes. Right. And 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 when we think of truth in that way, it becomes, it becomes kind of ridiculous that yeah, we have to mine for it, and it becomes so difficult. And not that I'm diminishing how difficult either of those situations right. would be. Right. But this is, you know, I'm in this business of kind of helping people mine for their truths and find the courage to express them. Because, right, you you, you work, talk to this girl whose father actually said it for right. her, right? I'm working with a young man whose parents are rejecting him mm. for that very truth, you know? Yeah. And so there isn't a guarantee when that truth comes out that things are going to be okay, you know? Right. And, so, and so holding on to the lie oftentimes I think feels safer it feels preferable to fighting for the truth yeah, yeah. that's true i want to get into um others reactions i think what we perceive is going to happen can sometimes make make getting to the truth a very difficult thing Definitely. and certainly where vulnerability and courage are involved for sure but we're going to take a little break get you to news when we come back we will continue this conversation about truth and lies and the very wide swath of land in between them amy guth on the saturday night special on 720 wgn Seven twenty WGN. Amy Guth on the Saturday Night Special. Thanks for being with us tonight. We are playing that lovely song, that heartfelt ballad, because we're talking about truth and lies tonight. In particular, we are talking about the very big gray area between them. Because if you think about it, that is a very big range, all the way from say perjuring yourself on the witness stand to a white lie to tell someone like spare someone's feelings so we're talking about that and anytime we need to figure out why we act the way we do we bring in our good friend dr john duffy and he's hanging out with us tonight in studio we're always happy to have you here so on the other side of news we were talking kind of about what the what different lies we tell to ourselves to others why we do so i want to shift a little bit because i think we should talk about others' reactions or, or perceived reactions or what we think they're going to say because I think that can that can really um, dictate a lot of what we do. And I think I'm in particular thinking about the the cliche of it's not you, it's me. Oh, yeah, right, right, absolutely. So there's that. There's that worrying about, like, I don't want to hurt somebody else. Right. And there's also on the, the counterpoint is I don't want to be hurt. You right. know? And so, I don't want like, them to lash out. I don't want them to scream. I don't want them to throw a drink in my face or so, whatever. So the lie, you know, is kind of a zero sum game. N- nobody gets hurt. We all both walk away happy. You know, what's the harm? Yeah. Right. Is there harm? It's hard to say, right? Yeah. Um, because in, in in that moment, I think you could argue mm, probably not. Probably everybody walks away feeling okay. Um, but it does beg the question, well, at what point does it cross over into harm? You know what yeah. I mean? Like, you know, what would be the next statement that would say that would make us think, mm, yeah, that feels like that feels like a more overt lie. That feels like it could be could break down somebody's integrity. That feels like it could hurt somebody's feelings. And I suppose there's even a fundamental question of even if we're hurting somebody's feelings, is it still the wrong idea to right. be truthful? Right. Yeah. I mean, in that example, the it's not you, it's me. You're going to hurt someone's feelings regardless. Right. They're not going to be happy about being dumped, probably. Right. So if it's just a matter of like, I just don't think this is right, I think it's probably harmless. Like, man, eh, we don't click. I do, too. I-, I will throw this out, though. I worked with a young woman in the past few weeks who said, 
who had that line mm-hmm. delivered to her, yeah. I think verbatim or awfully <laughs> close. Right. And, and her plea was, you know what? Tell me really what it is. Mm. I really want to know because I've heard this now over and over and over again, and I know it's me. Yeah. And so, and but this takes a, a, a lot, a lot, of, guts, of, a lot yeah. of courage, right? But to say, you know, like, really tell me what it is about me that is repelling you or mm-hmm. that is at least drawing you away from me, yeah. you know? Um, Did she get the answer? Yeah, she got the answer. She mm. got the answer, but she had to fight for it and she had to walk him through it mm. um, wow. because, because he was anxious about like hurting her feelings, sure. right? You know, I don't want to tell you this this thing about you but in the end she was grateful and it was something she knew about herself but she'd never heard out loud before mm. you know that that she's a little controlling a little bracing mm-hmm. and um and she knows she knows this comes from her childhood she can kind of track it all the way yeah. back and she's like i'm I, now I know to be aware of that. You know, I'm yeah. really grateful to this guy. You know, that's, and I, yeah, never, I say, that's I a never gift. see him again. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge gift. Yeah, that yeah. is a gift. There's also, I think, a piece of that. I mean, the, the definition of lie here is so encompassing of so many things because there's omitting a truth right. that can sometimes be a lie mm-hmm. of, of, no, really, tell me why we're breaking up or not going to be friends anymore or whatever. No reason. Like, we're, no, it's right. fine. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> it's all me. It's just my thing. I'm weird. No. no. Yeah. Or we just drifted apart, yeah. and that's the thing, you know, and it's over. Yeah. Right. But right. but sometimes, like in that example, by not telling her, she no no service was done, but by telling her, that was a gift. Right. I've been in that situation. I went on a first date one time, a long time ago, and, and at the end of it, it was the, oh, I'll call you. We should do this again. This was so fun. And I said, you know what? You were really nice, and I had a lot of fun hanging out with you, and you're very funny, but I don't think there's a romantic chemistry here, so let's just be friends, and if you mm-hmm. are cool. But, and he was so grateful to me that, um, you know, he even made a joke. He's like, please marry me. And I was like, that's not <laughs> what, that's the opposite of what I wanted you to say. Right. There's no, most women would say, yeah, sure, and then never speak to me again. Yeah. And I'm grateful to you for, for saying that. And it, I mean, it, I'd only known the man for, you know, an hour and a half at that point because we right. just had a drink and that was it. And so I suppose there's always the safety factor. Of course. You know, that yeah. he could have flipped out or who knows. But but I just felt like that's the right thing to do. He seems like a nice person. And and I was telling the truth. I was like, I, I would love to hang out with you again, but not in this setting. Um, and he, he ended up being a relatively good friend, you know, because I was like, nah. Probably no. <laughs> and, and if you weren't straightforward with him, in all likelihood, right. that wouldn't have happened. Right? Never That happened. would have just dissipated. Right, right. Because then there's there's also the, the, the current phenomenon of ghosting, where you just like never speak to someone again. Right. Which is so gutting. Like, that, yes. that plagues everyone. That's a right. terrible feeling. Because, you know, the temptation is like, oh, am I not even worth a conversation? Oh, my God. That's a terrible feeling. And imagine what we could gain. But I think, I think though, that ghosting is a symptom of a bigger thing. Where we don't really want to confront each other, we right. don't. We we think that that a correction or a truth is almost a confrontation or yelling or it's scary. I mean, I, I worry about that part. I think you're onto something where um, the truth feels like a confrontation. It's interesting that we're talking about like intimate relationships, but oftentimes these things become most apparent in those relationships. I, I worked with a couple recently who were on the they were on the verge of breaking up and. He was deeply insecure, and his his perpetual question to her was, why do you want to be with me? You know, I, mm-hmm. I don't really bring much to the table. And she at one point said, okay, here's the deal. Don't ask me that again because that makes <laughs> right. me think that you, you – that makes me wonder whether you bring something to the table. I think you're awesome. I think, you, you know, the, you, yeah. you bring an awful lot to the table. There's a reason I'm with you. But if you keep bringing that narrative into it, 
you're inviting fake. me to not like you. <laughs> exactly, right? And 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 so and and he would argue that saved it. That you know mm. that that we would they, they would have never seen each other again and she would have just evaporated from his life. How interesting. Yeah. How so. interesting. Well, and vulnerability is a big piece of it this is. too because yeah. and that I think stretches anything from when we're kids and we we BS our parents so that we won't get in trouble, <laughs> you know. Of course. There's that. Yes. All the way to uh you know, to, to big things like, like we see in the news, you know, when, when it's, um, you're leading a corporation or you're leading, you're a lawmaker or something like that, where, where it takes, it takes a lot of vulnerability and courage to tell a big truth. I think the bigger the truth, the more courage it takes. And I think the more kind of high profile you are, the less you feel inclined to be vulnerable. You feel, because we culturally have decided, um, unconsciously I think to some degree that this is a show of weakness that mm-hmm. not a show of leadership not a show of strength but a show of weakness and um, there's some there's some really neat things being written right now that would suggest really strongly that our biggest strengths come when we're vulnerable but but we don't know that we don't know that going in so you know we're anxious about about exposing ourselves but the more we're willing to do that I think we find and and there, I bet there aren't many people who can refute this you know, holy, you might find that your path veers into mm-hmm. a different place, but probably more closely to the right place for you, the more vulnerable you are. Yeah. Um, so I, I really do. Ha- I've come to believe that our strength lies in our vulnerability, not just persevering and gritting through a life that doesn't match us yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Because yeah. that too can be a lie. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. See, I told you guys, if we step into this topic, truth and lies seem so straightforward, not even a little bit straightforward. So much to it, so much nuance. We're talking with Dr. John Duffy, our good friend and regular guest on this program. We'll be right back to continue this conversation on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. It's Amy Guth here on the Saturday Night Special. Thanks for being with us tonight. Always very grateful to you for sharing part of your Saturday evening with me. We're talking tonight because on this show we pick one topic and talk about it all evening long. We're talking tonight about truth and lies and all the stuff that's in between them because it is a gray area. There's a lot to it. There's the simple white lie to spare someone's feelings. There's someone maybe is like lying to cover up wrongdoing. There's a lot to it. And as ever, when we ask ourselves what in the heck makes us act that way, we bring in our good friend, Dr. John Duffy, to help work it out because he is an expert and he knows all about these things. So before the break, we were talking a little bit about vulnerability. So I want to shift a little Hmm? because as we're talking about this gray area, it's clearly much bigger. Like it seems like the truth and the lie part on the ends are just little tiny little specks on this continuum. Right. And the the real bell curve. (laughs) Yeah. The bell curve here is really the conversation. But but let us think about the truth and lies because we like to think of the truth being a fact. Yep. Although I have a philosophy professor that I had in college who would say otherwise. He would say, if if it is if you say um, the car swerved, if it is really the truth, then the car will be swerving right then. It's only in that moment. He was a very heavy man, and I think he smoked lots of pot. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. That's his choice. It's all good. It would be legal now. It's fine. Absolutely. But nonetheless, um, so he had a, you know, this more philosophical view of what truth was. Mm -hmm. But if we look at them as absolutes, especially right now when we're talking about when we have 
oh, say, someone holding a very high office saying an absolute fact reported by a very credible and vetted news organization is fake news. Right. Straight up. Absolutely. That's a, an extreme example. But when we think about those absolutes, when we think about, um, you know, it calls into a lot of things suddenly get called into the ring of morality and, and philosophy and all these bigger things. It does. Um, right. Yeah. If, if you remember your philosophy 101 classes, for those of you lucky enough or uh, unfortunate enough, I suppose, to have taken <laughs> one, depending on the point of view, um, there was this argument about absolute morality mm-hmm. versus relative morality, right? And it would fit right in this discussion because, you know, is, is, would we all agree on what a lie is? Would we all agree on what the truth is? You know, um, and there, my professor would have said, um, "No, it's all relative." And you know, and your your reality is different than my reality. Your truth is going to be different than my truth, and your lie is going to be different than my lie. Mm. Um, which feels, as we sit here and talk now, awfully convenient, right? <laughs> right, mighty convenient. Yes, yes. Where, whereas, if we believe something is absolute. Then, then, then there is no bell curve, right? It's split right. right down the middle, and it's black and white and simple. But I feel like this discussion would suggest otherwise, that this is yeah. not so simple. Right. right. I yeah. mean, in the journalism world, that's why it's so important to say things like, XYZ happened, comma, police say. Right. I was not there. I did not see, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and we have to say, the police say the following things happen, or someone you know, is suspected of doing. We we have to say those things because we, in fact, can only report the information given to us. We can't report as a witness, right? which is a key thing. It, 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 it matches up a little bit with, with something going on in my field called neuro-linguistic programming, which is, in effect, in part, um, being very, very concise with language, just mm. like, you know, like a reporter needs yeah. to be, right, um, to, to be very, very accurate. If you're reporting a truth, it has to be a truth and it has to be cited, you know. Yeah. Um, and um, but that's not our normal day to day discourse. That's that's a reporter's discourse. Right. So, right. you know, like um, so day to day, how how do we hold ourselves to a standard that feels truthful enough where we and, and I suppose the benchmark I'm using in my mind is where we feel like we're sustaining our sense of integrity. Right. And still not causing more harm than good. So where do you see that the most in in casual interpersonal reaction interactions? Um, uh, in, in in almost uh, anything that 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 takes place between two people. There's there's um there's kind of a chilling bit of research out that says if two people who either know each other intimately or just casually are talking, within the first thirty seconds, there are at least two lies told. <laughs> wow. I know. That I know. made me jump. I kind of like, saved really? that for you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and again, it, it's a, a, a matter of great. Hey, it's just so great to see you when oh. I'm actually in a hurry to get down, you know, to, to work or whatever, right. you know. Or like, oh, God, you're the last person I want to run into. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But but on average, this is what these researchers found, right? Um, and so it, it can be. And how, be 30 seconds? 30 seconds. Oh, my god. Two and 30 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. The good news, I suppose, to give you a little hope is that it diminishes um, <laughs> over time and That's good. over the course of the interaction. But in the first 30 seconds, on average, there are two lies told, you know. So um, are they terrible lies? Are they, going, are they uh, terribly harmful lies? I always feel like the metric has to be something internal, you know, because I think if we pause for a moment and we consider 
our words, which we don't do very often. We don't give ourselves two, three seconds, which is a very long time in, in, in just normal discourse to consider, okay, is what I'm saying truthful? Is this what I want to say? Is this going to be harmful in any way? You know, right. But um, I think what's missing in a lot of our discourse um, interpersonally, mm-hmm. politically, uh, through the media is that moment. That moment of consideration. That's what I. That's what to me feels is missing. Is yeah. is consideration of my feelings, your feelings, um, and kind of like what's the impact here on the greater good. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the precision of language thing is very interesting. I, I rail often against buzzwords and business speak because I think it does. It, it's easy to make fun of, and it's a, it seems light, but I think it it does two things that are very powerful. One very good, one very bad. And one thing that it does is very good is that it conveys to others in your industry, I speak this language, I can be trusted to do this work. Right. On the on the downside, if you lock it up in jargon and buzzwords, you exclude people from entering the conversation and keep people from having a seat at the table in a way. If mm-hmm. if you're sitting there speaking in lingo, I mean, and I say this, the journalism world is full of shorthand of all kind of things. And if you your first day in there, you don't know what the heck anybody is saying. You're like, CQ? What is a CQ? I don't even right. know what that is. So so it takes a minute, but but once you unlock it. But there is a little bit of, you know, keeping people out of the clubhouse, I mm-hmm. think, that, that jargon can do. But we, we think a lot, um, I think sometimes about the wrong things when we're thinking about our language. Because I've heard a lot of people say, like, say you have an interaction in which you run into someone, you say, how are you? You're expecting, great, how are you? But instead, they deliver you a big truth. Like, I'm terrible. My, you know, my wife just died or whatever. Then you're, then what's going to happen is the person who heard you say that is going to go, man, I was just asking to be nice. I didn't really want to hear his whole story. Of course, right. At no point is the how are you dissected. No. Right. We, no. Right. We don't. We don't think. I asked a question I didn't really want the answer to because I felt expected to. We just criticize the person for telling the truth. The response, right? And, and the truth breaks a social convention that I think we'd agree is sometimes not the truth. <laughs> you know, right. and here's a person who's telling the truth, and it feels almost diagnostic. Like, ooh, you know, there's what a, a weirdo. personality issue here. Yeah. Like this <laughs> issues. TMI. I'm going to step way yeah. back from this. Yeah. 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 But yet saying i mean think about the weight of saying i'm fine right. when you're not right that can be the difference between life and death telling the truth absolutely right and so maybe and i like what your your thought like we don't ask about the question how are you you know what i mean we we often ask questions that are you know just the norm but not really our question right our, normally when we say how are you we're probably looking to say hi Hello, you know? I acknowledge you and yes. your existence right now. Yeah. <laughs> I, really I know doing. you. Yeah. <laughs> I know you, and I generally care that you're doing okay. Right. I don't want more than a five-second answer. That's right. Go. I can, I can see from here that I, I, I know everything I need to know, and I'm ready to move on. <laughs> I hope things are well. I don't want to ask because I don't want a long answer because I'm late to a thing. If only we would do it. We should start a challenge, I feel like. What, what if people were challenged to root out those lies? I mean, Two lies in 30 seconds of conversation. It would be amazing, right? It would be really curious to see where those flies fall out yeah. and, you know, and how people felt about them, you know, like, and, and what different conversation would take place if those lies became apparent, right? Would we, would we launch into something a little deeper and a little more meaningful? Because typically um, what I didn't mention is those lies tend to be 
um, surface. You know, they, yeah. they don't, it's not typically about something deep and, you know. Right. Uh, you don't but, say, I just bought a Ferrari. No. <laughs> just right. rolled up in a Pinto. Like, right, you probably right. are not going to do that. Right, it's probably right. just going to be, I'm fine. Yeah. Or good to see you. Or, exactly. You know, something something really relatively benign. Yeah. You know, um, but if we really got into it, it would yeah. be interesting. Imagine, because there's a dance there to be done between being a complete weirdo. Right. And being extremely honest and vulnerable to another person yeah which would be fascinating to watch i no mean no matter what it would be fascinating it's a it, it's a great social experiment <laughs> okay we're gonna start this this is gonna be a thing we're gonna put it on facebook or something it's gonna be a whole thing we're gonna try this we're gonna say i don't know 30 days or something of complete complete, complete honesty. honesty let's see where we let's see where we end up let's see where we land well we got to go to break, and we're going to get you to news and all that. But when we come back, we're talking with Dr. Brad Blanton, who wrote a book about this, wrote a book called Radical Honesty, really saying that we need to get it together, and the mm. way to do it is by telling the truth. A little bit later, we're going to be talking with John Rental, who wrote a book called The Band List, all about how we're really not saying the things we mean. So I think these two guys will get on board with our challenge here. Agreed. That's what we're going to do. All that and more when we come back on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. Amy Guth here on the Saturday Night Special. As ever, we pick one topic and we talk about it all night in lots and lots of pieces. And that topic tonight is truth and lies and the big swath of land in between them because there's a there's a lot there. There's it's not black and white. There's the simple white lie to keep the peace or to keep from hurting someone's feelings, right? But then there's the, you know, telling a lie to cover your butt. And then there's, we were just talking with our in-studio guest, regular contributor to this program, Dr. John Duffy. And we were talking about, he delivered this bomb to the studio in which we, he told us we hear in a conversation within 30 seconds, we've told two lies. (laughs) I can't get my head around that, but now I'm very, very worried about this fact being out in the world. So joining us now by phone is Dr. Brad Blanton, who is a psychotherapist and author. He wrote a book called Radical Honesty, How to Transform Your Life by Telling the Truth. And when I saw the title of that book, I said, sign me up. This sounds like my kind of deal. Welcome to the program, Dr. Blanton. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your Saturday night to to be with us and talk with us about radical honesty. So if you could tell us a bit, this is a, a nationwide bestseller and it's been translated into so many languages and so many people have read this book. And, and I, I'm curious how it has been perceived in different languages. But but tell us a bit about about the book and the impact that you were aiming for when you wrote it. Hmm. Well, I was a clinical psychologist in Washington, D.C. for about 35 years. And I had done that for about 20 years when I wrote the book Radical Honesty, which was now about 24 years ago. And basically, I was talking, I became, just by virtue of being a psychotherapist in Washington, D.C., I had become an expert in lying because that's pretty much the source of lying in the world. Right. (laughs) I saw more. I saw more lawyers in therapy than any other single profession. Mm-hmm. And uh, what they say about lawyers is true. Oh, come now. <laughs> <laughs> well, stressful and, uh, profession. Yeah. So the, we what we discovered was that 
there was something that worked in a lot of variety of different kinds of problems that people have. It worked when people, when couples were having conflict in their relationships. It worked when people were depressed. It was the way to uh, deal with anxiety and it worked to help people who couldn't sleep be able to sleep again and people who had sexual problems be able to be functional sexually again. And this thing that applied to all these different circumstances was me coaching people to be honest, to tell the truth about what they think, what they feel, and what they've done to everyone that they know personally and that they do it and stick with them. If they hurt their feelings, they hurt their feelings and stay with them until they get over having their feelings hurt. If they offend them, they stay with them until they get over being offended. And you can get over being offended and hurt, right? Pretty easy, about 90 seconds or so is all it takes. And uh, generally, what we, what I found that worked across all these different kinds of cases, the cure of depression in two or three months, and the end of renewal of relationships, and even if people got divorced, they had a better relationship after divorce than they did before. And it's something I call radical honesty. Well, I, I like it. I love the idea of it very much. And I feel very, very fortunate right now because I have such brains around me. I have you, Dr. Blanton, a psychotherapist. I have Dr. John Duffy in here, a clinical psychologist. Like, I'm good with brains right now. Good, good. Um, so, All right, good. Which I'm very excited about. So, but as you're saying this, and I, I'm I'm very much on board with this because we've just spent the first hour of the program talking about how we we are completely messing things up by even casualize that it's even become cultural to say oh yeah i'll call you when you have no intention of doing so and things little lies but but uh-huh. what you're speaking to really sounds like it must it might be a lot more difficult and i and the first question that comes to mind is kind of where do you find that line between um telling radical honesty and just oversharing yeah well, oversharing is already a sort of a defensive analysis of what the problem is whenever you don't like what somebody says when they tell you the truth. <laughs> so it's the oversharing is an interpretation. We're all living in a world, uh, we're, we're all living in at least two worlds. What makes human beings both magnificent and awful is the same thing, that we're able, we've, we were an insignificant little group of people in the north middle part of Africa 70,000 years ago, we were more, more important than snails or mushrooms or anything else. And in the last 70,000 years, we've taken over the world. And the reason we have is because we, unique among all creatures, can agree on belief systems that in, in mass with hundreds of thousands of people believing the same thing. And that way, we've taken over the world. We have these legal fictions called states and this tremendous fiction called money. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> these, <laughs> these, uh, and this is what we've used to take over the world. Well, the same benefit also has a lot of damage, which is the reality of belief is not real. Beliefs are not real. And uh, believing in belief, even though it's functionally co-creative, the more you start lying, 
the more you start withholding from other people in order to get them to cooperate with you, but you being charged by holding stuff back, the more you do that, then the more you get trapped in the jail of your own mind. You end up being trapped in your beliefs. And that's probably the fundamental cause of alienation, the end of intimacy, the basic things that go wrong that has to do with human beings not being able to get along with each other in families and companies and groups and politically and everything else has to do with what we're doing when we're basically attempting to manipulate and control each other through withholding. Uh, Dr. Blank. So, but, yes. Yes. So, so uh, th- this is John Duffy, and, 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 um, and I'm okay. so intrigued by um, this this concept of, of radical honesty, and I think you're suggesting that intimacy, intimacy and connection are diluted or eliminated when we are not radically honest with each other. I also hear you saying yeah. um, that most of the psychiatric disorders that you and I are both so used to treating, right, the depression and anxiety and, and the like, um, uh-huh. I, 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 you know, there are these um, research-based uh, approaches to treatment plans for these things. And I think you're suggesting, Uh boy, if we could just come to a place of radical honesty, regardless of what the fallout is, um, that, that an awful lot of that pathology would fall away. Am I missing that? Or is that, is that what you're, what you're, uh, nudging toward here? Uh Yeah, I, I, that's exactly. I agree completely. I'm sorry. Somebody's trying to call up my son. I'll answer it a little bit later. My son, who lives in Chicago, is <laughs> uh, anyway. That's that true. What happens is the the vulnerability that you have when you are honest. But the it makes you susceptible to being uh, to feel not so secure when you tell people. Resentment that is kind of petty, or you tell us about appreciation that seems to be a little elaborate. Not supposed to love anybody but the one other person you're supposed to love, or your kids, or something. But you actually love a lot of things about a lot of people, and so you're you seem vulnerable. You say it hurts my feelings, makes me mad, or this. But when you do that, thing is it also serves as an invitation to other people to be more honest themselves and it's a contagion that starts and when that contagion starts I run an eight day workshop called Course in Honesty and I run a five of uh, workshops one's called How to Get Over Shit and Be Happy <laughs> and and they're all they all have to do with what you are related to intimately you care about who cares about you and it opens up possibility of intimacy among people being the primary organizing principle rather than like greed or domination or power and stuff like that. And so in generally in in the political dialogue involved in these days the idea Oh you're breaking up your sounds like you're breaking up a tiny bit. I hope you can get back to a near a window or something, because we had a good signal on you there for a minute. All right. It might have been the call trying to come in. There we go. All right. Can you hear you okay now? Much okay. better. Yeah. Thanks. 
Well, so what would anyway, you say? People say people say that diplomacy is the alternative to war, but I think diplomacy is the cause of war. It's like dip, diplomacy is the source of war. What eventually we do is we start trying to kill off the people who are trying to control by manipulating them by being diplomatic. So I don't believe in diplomacy. I recommend the people they hurt other people's feelings and that they stick with them until they get over it. And I recommend offend other people and stick with them until they get over it. And you, when you get offended or you get hurt or any of these emotions that you have a prejudice against, you go ahead and have them and be honest about it and get over it. It doesn't take very long. And then you have a more intimate friend on the other side once you've done it. Well, I, I agree with that. I mean, that's I, I can think of examples as you're saying that, examples in my life. And when I've once I've said something difficult to someone after that, became much better friends with them for having said that thing. Whereas before it was kind yeah. of this minor annoyance. But then once I said, look, you do this thing that's driving me crazy, <laughs> then, you know, yeah. we became much better, much closer. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And to your point, exactly. recovery does seem to come quick. Um, but I think you're, you're suggesting recovery even comes quick, not just on this kind of like intimate interpersonal basis, but even on a global international basis. Yeah. It could. It takes a few times, actually. The accord between Israel and Palestine, it was worked out under Jimmy Carter. Nobody knows anything too much about this, but there was a meeting at Camp David for a couple of days run by people who were very skilled uh, therapists and trainers where they had the Israelis and the Palestinians cuss each other out and shout each other and call each other murderers and do all this, everything every resentment they'd ever expressed. And they came up with a court that lasted for like three and a half years before they went back to diplomacy. And that was the last effective accord that was in agreement between the two nation states. It's like, basically, if we actually had the guts to try this politically, it could work because secrecy, you know, all the current problems with secrets being kept and, the FBI directors being fired and moved and all that stuff has something to do by agreeing that we should have all these secrets. But I don't. I don't think we need these secrets. I think probably our secrets are the greatest self-poisoning thing that we have. You have given us a lot to think about. Dr. Brad Blanton, thank you so much for being with us. The book is called Radical Honesty, How to Transform Your Life by Telling the Truth. Nationwide bestseller in 1996, and it has been translated into seven languages since then. So I think it's you might be onto something. It's about 14 languages. It's oh, about 14 languages. Now 14. Now oh, are, I'm sorry. There are, and there are three other, three other books called Practicing Radical Honesty and the Truth Tellers, basically I'm a one-trick pony here. I just keep obsessing with it. <laughs> hey, if you find, there, ra- right, if you find something that works, build your expertise around yeah. it. Yeah, RadicalHonesty.com. You can read all about the books and about Dr. Blanton. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. I appreciate you sharing part of your night with us. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. Thanks so much. All right, we're going to take a little break, and we'll come back and continue this conversation about truth and lies. And we're going to, we have a lot to think about because Dr. Blanton gave us a lot to think about here. So Dr. John Duffy is hanging out with us in the studio, and he and I will talk about this idea of radical honesty, what, what we can do about that. More soon in just a bit on 720 WGN.
720 WGN. It's Amy Guth here on the Saturday Night Special. We have been talking about truth and lies and honesty and lies we tell ourselves, lies we tell others. We have Dr. John Duffy here with us in studio tonight, and I know you have to say goodbye here in a minute, and we'll, we'll be sorry to see you go. But, uh, you know, our last guest was a very interesting. He was quite a character. He was. Um, that was Dr. Brad Blanton. He's the author of the best-selling book, Radical Honesty, How to Transform Your Life by Telling the Truth. I thought that was a really powerful idea. I mean, at first I, I thought, gosh, even if you offend people, that sounds like you're going to make a lot of enemies. But he made a very good point, and you stay with them. Until they, you explain, you make your case. Yeah, it, it was it was really intriguing, um, and uh, I like the concept. I like the idea that you know a lot of what ails us um, internally, uh, emotionally, can be mitigated by just being honest. You know, I, I think that takes um, an awful lot of courage to do what Dr. Blanton is suggesting. Because what we didn't get to with him probably is how, what you were saying earlier, how honest you have to be with yourself in order to be honest with other people, right? You have to recognize what your truth is, right? Um, But if we were able to do that, then I think our experiment uh, we were talking about earlier is something that was viable and could be useful. I think we got to start this. A a little bit before, earlier in the show, we were talking about this idea of what if we made some kind of challenge? What if we say... For 30 days, you, you can only tell the truth. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking, what was that movie, that Jim Carrey movie, Liar, Liar? Right, right. right. <laughs> and in particular, there was the scene that that was that, that I always think of when I think of that movie. And it, it was kind of a ridiculous movie. But but um, he's like laying in bed with a woman. And she says something like, did you enjoy that? And he's like, meh, I've had better. <laughs> like, maybe let's not go that far. <laughs> right. I, I think I would maybe pull back a little bit from what Dr. Blanton said. Because I, I don't think it, you necessarily need to hurt someone's feelings. I do think there's a point of oversharing. Right. You don't have to say um, something that intentionally will hurt them because you think they need to hear it. Yeah, there's probably a difference. And fundamentally, I'm sure there is, between telling the truth and saying everything that's on your mind. Right. Yes. Right. Like that, I, I don't know how I would rewrite that Jim Carrey scene to be more <laughs> compliant with that. Right. <laughs> like, because then there's the the worst thing where, you know, uh, like if you if you say something vulnerable to someone and they like I believe you, right. <laughs> like, you know, you're like I love right. you. I'm sure you do. <laughs> like, it's way worse. <laughs> right, right. Nothing <laughs> reciprocal, like, oh, but man. right, <laughs> right. So there's that too. But but I'm very intrigued by this idea, I, yeah. and I'm very still stuck on that thing you said in the beginning of the show about how we. We are at the bottom of the last hour anyway mm-hmm. about about how we, on average, are going to tell two lies in the first 30 seconds of conversation. Yeah. That blows my mind, but I'm sitting here thinking about it. I'm like, well, sometimes I'm fine is not reality. Sometimes right. you're like, I'm having a terrible day and I would like to punch somebody. And I suspect we'll all be thinking a little bit differently about it after after tonight. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Well, thank you so much for joining us. When we come back, we're going to take a little break. When we come back, we're talking with John Rental, who is the author of a book called The Band List, and it is also calling for us to think about things in a different way, calling for us to think about how we use language and using that precision of language that Dr. Duffy was talking about. More when we return on 720 WGN.
Tonight, we're talking all about language, and we're talking about the truth that sometimes gets locked in language. And so we're joined now by John Rental, who is the chief political commentator for The Independent. John, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for being here. Hello there. So, so tell us a bit about your focus so much is on, is on jargon and how our, our language and even our knowledge kind of, kind of locks up the truth a bit um, when we obscure it with slang or jargon or, or uh, even just not saying what we mean. So, so tell us a bit about your area of focus there. Well, I mean, the reason I wrote this book, actually, it's, it all started with the, the Clinton campaign uh, in America in 1992 uh, because uh, the of the famous phrase that uh, James Carville devised, uh, the economy is stupid. It was, up, it was on the whiteboard in the, the, uh, the Clinton war room for that uh, election campaign. And, of course, ever since then, it's become a horrendous cliche in, uh, in not just American politics but in British politics. And it was because it was being used uh, in British political coverage in this country that I was, I was finally prompted to, to write this book about the way people use cliches and, uh, and jargon. Uh, as a sort of lazy way of avoiding uh, thinking about what they're really saying. I mean, the economy is stupid. It just means, you know, in politics, uh, whether people feel better off or not is um, is quite an important factor. Not not always a, a defining factor by any means, but uh, an important factor. And you know, if that's what people mean, then I think they should say that instead of uh, resorting to these um, these sort of uh, easy to easy to grab hold of, but rather meaningless phrases. Indeed, I, I'm so in favour of that because I think our our that drives me crazy when. <laughs> We just don't say the thing uh, that we really, really mean. So what is what makes us do that? Is it laziness? Is it uh, is it something the way we're wired to want to to use shorthand or is it something else? Oh, I think it is. It, it's it's laziness because it's obviously easy to use a, a cliche rather than, uh, than, than think of what it, what it is you're actually precisely trying to say. And, and politics is full of these. You know, we, we, we started it with uh, a week is a long time in politics in, uh, um, in the 1960s in British politics. And that's just used by political reporters everywhere just to mean, well, you know, stuff happens. Um, and uh, the, the other motive for using uh, jargon and, uh, and, and sort of special language, which isn't very clear, is the desire to appear to be part of an in crowd. And uh, this, this came up in, in British politics um, uh, yesterday because we had, uh, we had a leak of the Labour Party's manifesto for the coming general election. And I, I found some of the language in there uh, impenetrable because it was written by people who were very concerned about the particular policy area. You know, there was a, a section on education, which was which was just written in education jargon, and a section about uh, development. Uh, you know, sort of uh, development in what we used to call the third world is now called the global south. But I just thought that you know the phrase the global south is not one that you know most voters would understand uh, when the Labour Party is trying to appeal to appeal to them for their votes. Right, right, definitely, and. You know, it, that's a funny thing because it seems like on one hand, having speaking the language of an industry, I mean, here in the journalism world, right, we have tons of jargon and tons of yeah. shorthand for things um, that allows us to communicate effectively, but also to convey to our colleagues that we're in the know, that we're in this club, we speak this language. But as you point out, Absolutely. It, it becomes... It, intolerable and impenetrable and and i think it, it excludes people in a way when you when because 
until you know that passcode information, until you know that shorthand, it, it becomes um, very difficult to 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 enter a new space and and enter uh, enter a new group, really. Absolutely, and I think in America, there's a lot of talk in, among journalists about you know things being very much uh, in the Beltway, um, which which is, is, is a sort of paradox, really, because I, I imagine most normal Americans out in uh, in the states uh, wouldn't know what the Beltway was. Which Beltway are they talking about? Um, you know, but it means you know the Washington Beltway, the Washington bubble, uh, the sort of uh, the, the sort of in a in a clique of uh, of, of politics and journalists um, who who use this special language to themselves. And Beltway is one of the one of the special words that they use to refer to themselves. The words that concern me very, very deeply are the ones when when we start to use uh, kind of I call it activist speak when. Um, Things that are connected to bigger systemic issues where where the health and well-being of of people is really at stake when we but we start to to kind of couch it in language that I think sometimes um, really undermines some very serious issues sexism racism xenophobia big things like that um, you know one that that I noticed um, you know everyone's a big activist on Facebook of course um, of course right and and I have many times bemoaned the fact that hey, just just updating your Facebook status is not enough. You you have to do more. You have to you know write your representatives. You have to do the things. Um, but um, you know, one that I've seen come up so much, and I saw it erupt very uh, in a very big way on social media, was the word normalization because everybody is saying you know, oh, Trump is normalizing this kind of behavior, and this is normalizing this, and and I think that's an interesting word because we all know what it means, and uh, but it's become suddenly it's you know you can't go an hour without seeing that word <laughs> you are so right i mean that is that is an absolute classic of the sort of social media political activist uh who is objecting to you know people that they don't agree with being treated as if they've got a right to speak and they've got a right to take part in debate and so on i mean it's it's, it's very similar to another one which is very popular with uh, with particularly left-wing uh, activists on social media, which is moving the Overton window, which is all about how you know the, 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 their opponents in politics, the right-wing of politics, uh, by getting more attention for them to themselves, have moved the centre ground uh, of, of politics to the right, and that's uh, that's sort of unfair and horrible. Uh, but uh, as you say, it is a it is a cliche, and it's it's also not very clear. As to, as to what the problem is there uh, that people are trying to get at. So how do we fix this? How do we um, program ourselves and, and become aware? Because I think that's, that's part of it, too, is that we, sometimes we don't even realize when we're speaking in cliches. How do we think, outthink our brains here and outthink the wiring <laughs> to, to, say, to use more precise language? Well, it's very difficult, and and you know, I I'm the first person to realise. I mean, often when I've been interviewed about on the radio about my about my book and about the, my sort of uh, my pet hates in, in in language and cliche and jargon, and then I find you know when I'm on the when I'm on the spot talking uh, sort of in conversation, um, I find myself using some of these cliches. You know, I mean, I I I, I heard myself talking about how people wanted a sense of closure after the Iraq war and so on and that you know that's that's precisely the kind of cliche that I, I 
uh, I want writing journalists to try and avoid, but it's very difficult to do when you're doing the spoken word uh, because the brain just isn't, well, my brain isn't, isn't quick enough to get ahead of uh, what I want to say. Indeed. Well, so I want to talk about that book a lot. The, it's called The Band List. It came out in 2012. And um, it, it is it is really a, um, it, it feels like a manifesto of sorts, really. Like, here's here's the problem. Here's what we need to do to fix it. Here's the situation. How How has... How is beyond, I'm sure, people feeling very self-conscious when they speak to you after reading it, beyond, <laughs> beyond that, how, um, what, what did you see, um, maybe a surprising reaction to the book or a surprising um, change as a result? Well, it prompted a very, uh, a, a very interesting debate about, among uh, a, a lot of my journalists. Friends, I mean, a lot of people thought I was uh, I was just being a sort of curmudgeonly old uh, stickler and wanting to wanting to censor other people's language, uh, and you know I insisted that that wasn't what I was trying to do. Actually, uh, I'm trying to you know my purpose in writing the book was to try and help uh, journalists um, improve their improve their writing for their own sake because the problem with with journalism that uses um, cliche and, and jargon words is that it tends to put readers off and you know, it's, it's, it's very simple it's in your own interest to try and think of fresh ways of expressing yourself uh, and to use uh, reasonably correct uh, grammar and so on because then then the reader will think you're cleverer than you are and I, you know that was my simple purpose in in writing the book but it did get misinterpreted as me trying to uh, dictate to people how they should uh, how they should write and how they should speak well, shame on those people because I, I'm with you. I think I'm very much. Um, I have long bemoaned this in the workplace. I think in in business settings, it is it drives me absolutely crazy. And a particular phrase, and that is strategic integration, drives me bananas because I I I, w- I will stop people and say, "Do you mean what? Do you, what does that mean? Does that mean turn on, yeah. flip a switch? Does that mean?" plug something in what what will you actually do because it usually means i'm going to log into something that's usually what yeah. that means i will log into this and i will send this tweet or i will do this thing and and it's it's i mean it, in a way in that way it, it leads into i think a conversation too about self-aggrandizement also and and not necessarily in, an, in a narcissistic way but certainly in a validate my job kind of way yeah no i Absolutely. I, th- I think workplace jargon is, is, is you know, where the problem is possibly greatest because at least journalists are sort of aware of the, of, of, of the need to communicate and the need to simplify uh, and use fresh language to do that. Whereas, whereas people who are not used to public speaking, not used to communicating uh, so much, do tend to retreat to... Uh, those kind of uh, stock phrases that, uh, that that managers in in businesses uh, love because they sound grand, but they don't actually mean very much. Like horizon scanning and uh, what was the what was the one you just uh, you just said? Strategic integration. Strategic integration. I mean, that is just uh, that just doesn't doesn't mean anything at all. But I mean, none of these none of these words do. But they but people use them because. They, they they feel insecure about their status or about uh, about the importance of what they're trying trying to communicate, and they don't realise that actually if you if you just say what you what you want to say in the simplest possible language, uh, people will think uh, think better of you for it. So after the book came out in 2012, a couple of years later, you wrote an updated list um, <laughs> about other words that just need to go. 
Yeah, and I've been updating the list uh, ever since. Uh, it's, it's never changing. And, and that's... That, that has led to the to the other dispute, which is you know, by the time you've finished rental, there'll be no uh, there'll be no words that we're actually allowed to use. But my point to that is always that the English language is so infinitely varied and rich that there will always be uh, different ways of expressing yourself. Even if even if I banned every sort of familiar uh, turn of phrase that uh, that that has been. Uh, used and reused too often, there's still so much more left in the English language. If if people will only just sort of pause a little bit just to think of how to express themselves. Yeah. Well, I, I, I am really interested in history and in genealogy, and, and I think diaries are an interesting entry point into that, and it's always interesting to find, you know, a, a long-lost ancestor's, you know, writings. And it's interesting because there's, I think, a fine line between the way language evolves over time. I mean, certainly my great-grandmother's journal day-to-day read much more formally than I would write one now. Um, just yeah. the language of the time. But then there's kind of, there's a, the other side of that is, is sometimes where language is evolving to, to a very different weird place. It doesn't feel like it's evolving. It feels like it's falling apart almost. <laughs> well, I've been, uh, I've been slightly re-educated since, since the book um, in, in, a, in a debate with uh, one of my colleagues on the, on the Times newspaper in London um, who, who he rather enjoys uh, pointing out that, uh, that a lot of my, um, my objections to change in English language are just me being a fuddy-duddy uh, and that, you know, that, that language has to change and will change and the way people use it is the way is you know there's there's no right or wrong uh, that is just the way people use it and we we have this problem in in uh, britain uh, particularly with the importation of a lot of american phrases i mean uh, you know anytime soon instead of just soon mm-hmm. is a is a particular american phrase that has just completely infected our language but in in a, in a way i've got used to that and and, and have accepted that our language is going to change, but I just want people to think about it and try to avoid uh, try to avoid cliches for their own sake while that happens. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I, I want to get to the list of some of the things that are words that are particularly offensive to you right now. But um, I also I also <laughs> want to think about um, you know the the reason we're even going here and talking about this is because um, the way that it's not just about language trapping our knowledge it, it's i think it's just a, a gross miscommunication i mean particularly it's important to journalism but but i think in everyday conversation it's hard enough to communicate with the people around us and communicate clearly with the people that we're working with the people we live with the people our families you know all of those things that that it yeah it Sometimes it's, I mean, it, it, it's, it's as if our lives become this big elaborate game of telephone when we're not communicating clearly and we've, you know, three people away, the message is completely obscured. But, but when, we, when we get into politics, it is particularly troubling. And, and I think right now in this country, certainly, there's a lot of people very concerned about the political landscape. Um, but when, when we, it's interesting, right, because and on one hand, the core supporter of of the current administration from the jump praised very uh, no nonsense language. Right? It was very yeah. oh he's he's no nonsense. He's he's a straight shooter. He he just says it like it is. But in fact, and meanwhile, the critics were saying, but he's not saying anything. He's not in fact not saying anything at all. Which which to me is this fascinating. Just that. Just. 
pre-election language used by Trump was so fascinating to me in the way it was able to mobilize so many people while while it was so glaringly obvious to others that he was say, saying very little. Yeah, absolutely. But that's, uh, I mean, that is politics, isn't it? I mean, we've got the same uh, situation over here with uh, our, our forthcoming uh, general election. Um, you know, you hear the same uh, slogans uh, repeated again and again. I mean, Theresa May uh, describes herself as, uh, as for strong and stable government uh, and the opposition as a coalition of chaos and we just we hear those phrases again and again and they don't they don't mean very much uh, and they they become very irritating to journalists but um but most people don't pay that much attention to politics and i suspect the same is true in the states that uh, people heard uh, donald trump promising to make america great again and they thought that was quite a good idea right well i think that that phrase alone has sparked round debate too of what's again when you know define again when what's wrong with it now and you know there's a lot of very deep philosophical conversations that can be uh sparked just from that one phrase <laughs> certainly well so then there's a almost a an element of media literacy there too as as the average consumer is you know, consuming media, consuming politics, and listening to those very persuasive verbal cues. Yes, absolutely, and I think that's um, you know, it, it is it is pointless to try to um, to to hold the line against you know politicians simplifying their message and using language in in clever clever persuasive ways. Um, that I'm not really against that at all. Sure. Yeah. Well, well, that's that's the game of politics, right? There, that's it's a matter of campaigning and being persuasive, and then hopefully one gets into office and starts doing those things instead of <laughs> instead of just <laughs> keeping on with inflammatory language. All right. So I want to get to the list of the the words that the banned list of words that just have got to go. There's one that jumped out at me right away that I really loved, um, and that is to call out. Oh, that's, that's another Americanism that's, uh, that's, that's affected. I mean, that, that has become so popular among uh, politicians in, and, and, and political commentators in, in Britain today. And uh, it irritates the hell out of me. But I mean, I know, I know it, shouldn't, it shouldn't really because, you know, that, that is just language changing. It's just, a, it's just a usage. But it's one of those things that, you know, people start to use because it's, it sounds fresh and because it's from America, it, it, you know, it sounds, it sounds a bit sort of hip. Uh, but then they use it too much and it becomes extremely annoying. <laughs> well, it's funny because I think we feel that way about Britishisms that we'll about something. And <laughs> well, go on, give me an example of a Britishism that you don't I like. don't know. I can't think of one off the top of my head. But I feel like, uh, you know, people will, will, like when Madonna suddenly had a fake British accent and was trying to be more British, everybody was just like, what are you doing? But then, <laughs> but then if someone, like, goes abroad and comes back, and they're like, oh, I, I heard someone say this phrase or something, and it just seems like, oh, how, how very interesting and how worldly you are that you know this ism from somewhere else. Yeah. Well, I think to call out is one that is an interesting phrase because you, you're not really saying what you're doing. You know, you're saying I, you could be calling someone out for bad behavior. You could be, but, but what you're really doing is you're, you're objecting to their behavior and speaking up about it. You're telling them so. I am confronting yeah. you. I, I mean, it could be anything from an intervention to, <laughs> to making fun of someone. It could be a lot of things. Um, exactly. And and it's it's a very loose phrase, and therefore, yeah, it, it's an it's it's what people use when they're not really sure what they what they object to and what they, what they mean by by objecting to it and what they want to see happen instead. But yeah, there you go. Yeah, well, in all these, it's it's a matter of avoiding what you're really saying, which can be 
a, a path to bad communication, but you know, at best, but it can certainly, at its worst, it can it can completely um, obscure information. And then certainly, when there's big things at stake, it can be you know that can be very very tricky to navigate. Um, and then. Sure. Also, there's one that I really like. Also, a word that, that or a phrase that must go in your eyes is "just saying." Oh yes, no, that's uh, that's a social media yeah. horror. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, social media is 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 absolutely wonderful. I use Twitter all the time. I'm on Twitter all the time, and I love I love the way that it plays with language and um, you know allows you know invent you know you get all these new in, inventions like um, and the abbreviations like F O M O and uh, so on um, which I couldn't I you know I'd seen that several times and I couldn't remember what it stood for but it's fear of missing out and, I love them uh, <laughs> you know, yeah I, I like I, I mean I like that kind of inventiveness but you know as with all these things you know these things are fresh to start off with but then people use them all the time and they become and they become irritating um, just because you've heard it so many times before. People think they're being sort of clever and uh, and, and with it, and um, they're not. They're just copying. They're just copying what other people are doing. Yeah, the one the one I've seen a lot lately is uh, "Don't at me." Yeah, that's another. <laughs> that's another one. Or. You know, when people just retweet something and say "thread," um, yeah. you know that kind of thing. <laughs> you know, just, yeah. uh, you know, it's not. Um, it, you know, if people do it too much, then it stops being interesting. And so, you need to be sensitive to how how common some of these uh, these phrases and devices become, uh, and try to keep it uh, keep it fresh. But so, in a sense, I'm I'm arguing that language should should change faster because people get stuck in these uh, in these ruts of new phrases. Yeah, I was just about to say, and in, in, in some sense, it seems that in fact, it's the it's the lack of movement that hurts us there because because things get again kind of couched and lost in jargon and lose their yeah. meaning. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, to go back to where we started, you know, it's the economy stupid was uh, was 1992, um, which is what 25 years ago now, and um, you know that has just become sort of stuck in the language, um, and it's all it's all on the way to becoming an idiom, a sort of uh, a phrase which which almost doesn't mean anything at all. Um, and you know, I just think we we need to to guard against that, or at least we. Need to remember what the original context of these uh, these phrases were, because people just, you know, tend to sort of use old dead phrases as if they they uh, as if they hardly have any meaning at all. And I think there's a there's a, a more sinister beat of that 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 we've evolved to a place where we. I think we lie to each other without even realizing it at this point, where we say things like, yeah, I'll call you. Yeah, let's hang out. (laughs) It's like a social um, expectation that we're going to end a conversation in that way by saying, yeah, well, we're going to, yeah, good to see you. We're going to hang out. But we don't, we have no intention of ever speaking to that person again, which that, that's, oh, I, thought only, I thought only British people did that. No, no I think that's universal. I think all, all people do that, but that, but that's concerning because we, we, um, you know, certainly in some contexts, that becomes very, very upsetting to people. If you, you know, say if you end a date, I'll call you, and then don't. That can really, you know, bum someone out. Well, that's uh, yeah, absolutely. If people, if 
people think that you know certain phrases mean uh, mean different things, then that is a recipe for for misunderstanding and uh, and, and upset. So uh, again, it's it's it, that's just an argument for being clear about uh, what what you're saying. Um, although. You know, the use of white lies in social interaction, I think, is uh, is something that you're never going to be able to uh, legislate against. No, and I think some of them, you know, to spare feelings. Of course, that dress is lovely, or whatever. <laughs> I think, you know, <laughs> yeah, some, sometimes I think uh, it's it's very necessary. But I I feel like there's uh, I could make the case that we we should all perhaps be a little more conscious about this, not just those of us in journalism, but everyone should be a little more conscious about this and try to try to say more precisely exactly what we mean. Um, I completely agree with you. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's let's get this tre- trending on Twitter right away. Let's do this. Let's, <laughs> let's start a revolution. All right. The book is called The Band List. John Rental, thank you so much for being with us. My absolute pleasure. This is Chicago's very own 720 WGN Chicago and WGNRadio.com. If you are an Amazon Echo user, just say play WGN Radio.